0: Let's Be Frank is a podcast centered on interpreting the life of Benjamin Franklin and the times that shaped his thoughts and soul. Some content may not be appropriate for younger viewers. Listener discretion is advised. Greetings and salutations, dear listener. Welcome to another installment of Let's Be Frank, an auditory almanac for the curious mind, with me, your faithful friend and host, Dr. Benjamin Franklin, printer. For purposes of good order, this podcast is composed of several primary sources associated with Benjamin Franklin's life, knit together with original writing to collect it all into one narrative on a cohesive theme— Today's episode is about where we come from, where we're going, and the value we find in each along the way. Several nights ago, I had at table several members of the American Philosophical Society, most were old acquaintances, but among them were several new. And over several courses and one too many pipes of Madeira, strangers became acquaintances, and acquaintances became friends. Dear listener, it enforced in me a sentiment I have long held. Share a table with strangers, and you can acquaint yourself with the world. I've had the honor of hosting a great many names of note at my supper table, but never before was there a greater diversity of opinions and peoples around my supper table than in my time as a diplomat in France. During my first trip abroad, when I was best known for my endeavors scientific rather than statecraft, I had the honor to be presented to the then King and Queen of France, and got my first glimpse at the pomp and pageantry of the Great Covert, where the royal family dine with the public outside the Palace of Versailles. On this particular time, I kept company with Sir John Pringle, the first baronet and president of the Royal Society, not to be confused with the Pringle of the same name that revolutionized the keeping of potato crisps in a tube to maximize their freshness. That's a joke, dear listener. When Sir John and myself were presented to the King and Queen, they did him the honour of asking questions after the royal family of England, and invested care to ask him questions of his own. What surprised me, on this particular occasion, was the care and interest their majesties took in asking after myself— in a setting where ribbons, badges, sashes, and accomplishments of ones family long dead determine someone's worth, there I was, a man of no exceptional quality outside of the contributions of my own lifetime, commanding the attention of kings, which leads us toward today's topic: where we wear our honor. A journey back with me, dear listener to the year 1784. I was a diplomat in France, having far too much fun for any well-respecting septuagenarian to have, surrounded by the glories of this world and amusements of all sorts. Both at the Palace of Versailles and in Paris, I found a prodigious mixture of magnificence and negligence, with every kind of elegance except that of cleanliness." America had just achieved her independence. The ink on the Treaty of Paris was drying, and, as the door was closing to the insults and injuries that led to the Revolutionary War, an entirely new door of calamity was swinging open to strike our new nation in its backside. Our Articles of Confederation were proving every day deficient. It was growing increasingly difficult as a foreign diplomat to correspond with the feeble Congress of Confederation, ever at odds with itself, now that we did not have our fight against the British Lion to unify us. Soldiers were going without pay, but, most of all, we were a new nation with no model for how we may conduct ourselves. People longed for a means to express who they were. We could no longer be British and indeed we were too different to be Americans, whom could we be? One of the truest and earliest institutions of unity across the thirteen United States was the Continental Army, and when they disbanded, a great many wished to find a way to immortalize those bands of consanguinity into a new society. In May of 1784, a group of soldiers would form a new organization, a fraternity of sorts, that would honor the blood spilled, wounds earned, and liberty purchased by those brave individuals who fought for the independence of all Americans. They called this fraternity the Society of the Cincinnati, in honor of the great Roman hero Lucius Quintius Cincinnatus, hero of ancient Rome. Before I fall too far into another tangent, the example America took from ancient Rome is a discussion in and of itself, so I will endeavor to be brief and give you the bare minimum of what you need to know so we can continue through the story. Cincinnatus was a farmer who, when Mother Rome was in danger, set aside his plow to take up the title of dictator and, sword boldly in hand, beat back the foreign horde of enemies peace restored, the people, so in awe of this hero, begged him to keep the laurel and remain king. Cincinnatus, loving Rome and liberty too much, cast it aside and took up his plow once more. It was exactly the symbolism in infant America, particularly the soldiers who left farm and field behind to fight for the ideas of our revolution needed. Washington was the new and obvious American Cincinnatus, the farmer who, when offered the crown, returned to his vine and fig, and the soldiers, suddenly the chosen people of God, bound to beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. There was only one small fault I found in this new society, which leads me back to the original point. This new society was to be hereditary. Now, my opinion of the institution cannot be of much importance. In fact, I will agree at the suggestion of friends to not make these sentiments publicly in my lifetime. However, I feel I might ask your indulgence in humoring me as I share them, dear listener. It should come as no surprise, despite in many of our founding charters expressing a dislike for rank of nobility and hereditary titles, that a number of private persons should think proper to distinguish themselves from an order of hereditary knights or nobility composed of those who have been too much struck with ribbons and crosses that they have seen hanging, or buttonholes of foreigners. It's a truth, most eternal, that I have observed— that if people can be pleased with small matters, it is pity, but they should have them. In this view, perhaps, I should not myself, if my advice had been asked, which it wasn't, have objected to their wearing of ribbons and badge themselves according to their fancy. My objection is entailing it as an honor on their posterity, i.e., passing these honors down to your children." and their children, and their children, etc., ad infinitum. For honor, worthily obtained, is in its nature a personal thing, and incommunable to any but those who had some share in obtaining it. Is this the best model for encapsulating virtue and nobility? There are some nations about the globe, much older and wiser than our own, where honor does not descend, but rather instead ascends. Dear listener, if an individual from their learning, their wisdom, or their valour is promoted to a rank of note, their parents are immediately entitled to all the same ceremonies of respect from the people that are established as due to the individual themselves, on the supposition that it must have been owing to the education, instruction, and good example afforded them by their parents that they were rendered capable of serving the public— this ascending honor is therefore useful to the state, as it encourages parents to give their children a good and virtuous education. But the descending honor to a posterity who could have no share in obtaining it, it is not only groundless and absurd, but often hurtful to that posterity, since it is apt to make them proud, disdaining to be employed in useful arts, and thence falling into poverty and all the meanness, servility, and wretchedness attending it, which is the present case with much of what is called the nobleness in Europe or if to keep up the dignity of the family estates are entitled entire on the eldest male heir another pest to industry and improvement of the country is introduced which will be followed by all the odious mixture of pride and beggary and idleness that have half depopulated and decultivated certain states among the theatre of the world oh I'm getting a bit fired up Perhaps it's my deep devotion to democratic virtue that balks at this puffed-up notion of nobility. Or, perhaps, it's an avowed desire to preserve my vanity. (laughs) Indeed, I scarce ever heard or saw the introductory words, without vanity I may say, etc. But some vain thing immediately followed. Most people dislike vanity in others, whatever share they have of it themselves, But I give it fair quarter wherever I meet with it, being persuaded that it is often productive of good to the possessor and to others. By my rambling digressions, I perceive myself to be grown old. Dear listener, I used to write and speak more methodically, but we're in an informal setting. One does not dress for private company as for a public ball, though perhaps it's only negligence. The summation of all of this, before we set this sword down for a plowshare, is this. Beware of hereditary nobility, the seed of dissension, hatred, and domestic wars. Whoever acts righteously in order to obtain a recompense is unworthy of the republic and of humanity. Make your monuments, dear listener, of thought, not of men. Now, am I saying... In all of this conflagrated language, that one should not take pride in where one comes from, not in the slightest, dear listener. I foresee a day where tracing one's heritage is a million-dollar industry. We have a great curiosity in determining where we come from, and there is no fault in that. But, dear listener, we cannot derive all of our value in the events shaped by the past. That was their glory, and now you have the opportunity to seize yours. I have ever taken great pleasure, in tracing back where I come from, of obtaining any little anecdotes about my ancestors. Having emerged from the poverty and obscurity in which I was born and bred, uh, I have risen to a state of affluence and some degree of reputation in the world. And having gone so far through life, with a considerable share of luck and felicity, the conducing means I made use of, and that you may find suitable to your own situation, you may therefore imitate. Uh, But please, only the good parts, dear listener. Now, enough of my life now. Autobiographies are just justified self-praise. Now, being absent of noble beginnings— I made it my practice, early in life, to live nobly, until notable reputation was attained. I endeavored to find some scientific meter and metric whereby honor could be obtained within my own lifetime, since I had great deficit of it by my upbringing. I was fairly successful with that, and I will gladly share my methods with you. Dear listener, towards the later half of the seventeen and twenties, I conceived the bold and arduous project of arriving at moral perfection. I wished to live without committing any fault at any time or offending any person at any time. It did not go well, but I tried. I would conquer all that either natural inclination, custom, or company might lead me into as I knew, or thought I knew, what was right and wrong. I did not see why I might not always do the one and avoid the other. Now I soon found I had undertaken a task of more difficulty than I had imagined. In the various enumerations of the moral virtues I had met with in my reading, I found the catalogue more or less numerous, as different writers included more or fewer ideas under the same name. Temperance, for example, was made by some confined to eating and drinking, while by others it was extended to mean the moderating of every pleasure, appetite, inclination, or passion, bodily or mental, even to our avarice and ambition. I propose to myself, for the sake of clearness, to use rather more names with fewer ideas annexed to each than a few names with more ideas and I included, under thirteen names of virtues, all that at that time occurred to me as necessary and desirable, and annexed each a short precept, which fully expressed the extent I gave to its meanings. Now then, submitted for your beneficence, dear listener, Benjamin Franklin's List of Moral Virtues for Moral Improvement. Below are the names of the virtues, with their precepts. Number one. Temperance. Eat not to dullness, drink not to elevation. Number two. Silence. Speak not, but what may benefit others or yourself. Avoid trifling conversation. Number three. Order. Let all your things have their place. Let each part of your business have its time. Number four. Resolution. Resolve to perform what you ought. Perform without fail what you resolve. Number five. Frugality. Make no expense but to do good to others or yourself, i.e. waste nothing. Number six. Industry. Lose no time. Be always employed in something useful. Cut off all unnecessary actions. Number seven. Sincerity. Use no hurtful deceit think innocently and justly, and if you speak, speak accordingly. Number eight, justice. Wrong none by doing injuries or omitting the benefits that are your duty. Number nine, moderation. Avoid extremes. Forbear resenting injuries so much as you think they deserve. Number ten, cleanliness. Tolerate no uncleanliness in body, clothes, or habitation. Number 11, tranquility. Be not disturbed at trifles or at accidents common or unavoidable. Number 12, chastity. Rarely use venery but for health or offspring, never to dullness, weakness, or the injury of your own or another person's peace or reputation. Number 13, humility. Imitate Jesus or Socrates. My method of moral improvement was straightforward. For each new day, a different virtue was to be the subject of my focus, recognizing that in focusing on all, inevitably, I should stumble upon one or another. In being moderate, I would not be resolute. In honoring justice, I would not be silent. In promoting industry, I would sacrifice chastity. I shan't get any further into that, dear listener. Now These virtues are not unique to my time indeed it is my estimation in examining history man has been endeavoring to reconcile themselves to these aforementioned virtues for thousands of years and for thousands of years man has endeavored to be better than their own self-interest when we examine the topic covered today We can see that throughout history, man has worn the decorations of their ancestors for virtues they embodied in their time. But virtue, while it may be taught, is not inherently hereditary. It is earned by daily practice, daily work, and daily deeds. Now the lesson derived from all of this, dear listener, is to be the best addition of yourself today. Be proud of where you've come from, but don't rest upon it as a prop. What wonders can arise if you devote yourself to self-revolution? And if you do, dear listeners, what honors may lay waiting ahead rather than behind? And lastly, wear your honor well. Make those who came before you proud and inspire those who come after. And to quote the wisdom of one Miss Bridget Saunders from Poor Richard's Almanac in 1733, each age of man new fashions doth invent. The things which are old young men do not esteem. What pleased our fathers doth not us content. What flourished then we do not fashion deem. And that's the reason, as I understand, Why Prodigus did sell his father's land. I think of how this might be applied to a nation. If we place our heraldry ahead of us and all the honors on our future, could it be possible that we might leap above the snares and brambles of nostalgia and dare courageously ahead towards a future fixed on innovation? Brave are a people who honor the past by learning from it, and honor the future by earning for it. The grandest of things, after all, may come from the humblest of origins, and a man can do nothing with yesterday, everything today, for something tomorrow. That's all for today's installment. Would that we had more hours in the day, but as always, we have nothing but time between us. Oh, and dear listener, for our little contest, did you catch the date of the passage from poor Richard's almanac? It's the 1733 edition. A humble reminder, the first from our Junto to send in the date of that passage to inquiries at bfranklinlive.com will receive in the post a book from my own personal library, as well as bragging rights for the remainder of your days. And as we close, I hope I may again offer this solicitation. We here at Let's Be Frank are always looking for opportunities to travel— Franklin visited two continents and countless states in his lifetime, and here in 2023, he wants to visit you. If you wish for a live presentation with the good doctor at your theater, school, or event, simply write to the email mentioned before. That's inquiries at bfranklinlive.com. And my associates will make good to set up an appointment post-haste. Resources and images from this week's episode can be found in the journal at www.bfranklinlive.com. If you like the show, subscribe and stay up to date with all the latest gossip and news, and do me the kindness of leaving a review. And spread the word. Tell your family, tell your neighbors, tell your horse, I don't care. Let's make our intellectual junto grow. That's all for now, dear listener. Fare thee well. And always remember, when you're good to others, you are best to yourself. Until we meet again, I remain your humble and obedient servant, Dr. Benjamin Franklin, printer. Stay curious, my friends.